The power of books to transform the minds and personalities of their readers can...
the variants in late medieval. Necromantic texts seem to have been so common that a practitioner might have despaired of ever finding a flawless text to recite. In any case, the problem of verbal flaws was perhaps not the necromancer's greatest concern. A short, anonymous work called the Liber Consecrationum, Book of Consecrations, which circulated in late medieval manuscripts in varying forms, makes clear that the book itself was a sacred object requiring elaborate consecration, and that its contents might lose their magical efficacy. 25 According to this book of consecrations, the magician must seek to recover the lost efficacy of his formulas by subjecting the book itself to an elaborate process of recharging, or reconsecration. The prologue to this work insists that its proceedings are especially valuable, being dedicated to the names of God, and should not be used in vain. By invoking God's names, the exorcist or operator can renew the power of a magical experiment which has lost its efficacy. Many people seek to achieve great works and possess writings by which they will attain their desire, but they accomplish nothing because their experiments are corrupt. The operator must refrain from every pollution of mind and body, and for nine days must be abstinent in food and drink, must keep from idle or immoderate words, and must be clothed in clean garments. On each of these days he must hear Mass, carrying this book with him and placing it on the altar during the Mass, which seems to assume the celebrant's complicity, if the owner of the book is not in fact himself a cleric. He must execute this procedure devoutly, with prayer and fasting, so as to attain knowledge of sacred mysteries, and then he must carry the book back home. He should have a secret place, sprinkled with holy water, in which he can place the book, after binding it with a priestly cincture and a stole placed in the form of a cross. Kneeling toward the east he must say seven psalms, presumably, the seven penitential psalms, the litany, meaning the litany of the saints, and a further prayer before opening the book. Then he may open the book with humble devotion and with heartfelt desire, that God may sanctify and bless and consecrate this book, devoted to his most sacred names, so that it may fully obtain the power it should have, that it may have power for consecrating the bond of spirits and for all invocations and conjurations of spirits, and likewise all other experiments. These instructions are followed by a prayer, to be said after the litany of the saints, actually three prayers of varying length. The first is a plea that God may hear the operator's prayers despite his unworthiness. Second, addressed to Christ, repeats this central entreaty, and asks that he may consecrate this book. By the power of these your most sacred names, on, Jesus Christ, Alpha and O, L, Eloi, Eloi, Sithithith, Eon, Septmelamaton, Ezelfates, Tetragrammaton, Eliaram, Ryan, Desirean, Eristian, Isionus, Onella, Basin, Moing, Meshes, Souther, Emmanuel, Sabaoth, Adune, and by all your secret names which are contained in this book, so that by the virtue, sanctity, and power of these names this book may be consecrated and blessed and confirmed by the virtue of the sacrament of your body and blood, so that it may effectively, without any deception, and truly obtain the power that this book should obtain, for consecrating the bond of spirits, and for consecrating all corrupt experiments, and that they may have the fullness of virtue and power for which they are ordained, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated on high, to whom be honor and glory throughout unending ages. Amen, 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 Amen. This second prayer then invokes all the heavenly powers to bless the book. The third and briefest simply calls upon Christ to bless the book. The procedure is then complete. If the operator later wishes to consecrate a particular experiment, or add a new one, 
he should use a series of further prayers, along with which he must say the confiteor, take holy water, and make the sign of the cross on his forehead. At all times he must take care that this book, which the wise adepts, Sapientissimi Physici, dedicated to God's holy names, not fall into the hands of the foolish. Why this caution might be necessary becomes especially clear toward the end of the supplementary prayers, in which the exorcist or operator specifically requests power to summon malign spirits from wherever they may happen to be lurking. The mentality of the necromancers and their opponents. It would be a mistake to think of necromancy as a peripheral phenomenon in late medieval society and culture. Secular as well as ecclesiastical courts took it seriously and at times executed those charged with its practice, monarchs and popes as well as commoners lived in fear of becoming its victims. This fear may have been in some cases or to some degree feigned or pathological, but it was also grounded in realistic awareness that necromancy was in fact being practiced, and in an almost universally shared conviction that it could work. The history of magic sometimes claims a place in academic study as a field within intellectual history. This claim is plausible when the subject is a writer such as Ulkindi or Marsilio Ficino, deeply concerned with the practical operation of magic but also with the philosophical principles by which magic worked. This is not the type of material I will chiefly be examining in this study. The focus here will be formulas of frankly demonic magic, with only the most meager of intellectual pretensions, I wish to suggest, perhaps perversely, that such a text nonetheless repays close examination. The rites contained in a manual of necromancy are flamboyantly transgressive, even carrying transgression toward its furthest imaginable limits, and in today's academic environment one might justify studying them on these grounds. I am impelled more by a simple urge to grapple with late medieval culture in its entirety, including its most problematic and conflicted manifestations, warts and all to use a fitting cliché, and to explore how the underside of the culture related to the side more often displayed. This too is part of the historian's challenge of discerning how things made sense in an alien culture. First, then, the surviving necromantic texts provide a useful starting point for the sources of late medieval magic. Certain aspects of the necromancy laid out in these writings are clearly derived from the Arabic tradition of astral magic that became widely diffused in Europe from at least the 13th century onward. At times, as we shall see, the experiments are indebted to Jewish magical traditions, whether explicitly or implicitly. Although the impact of Jewish magic on the forbidden rites of Christum has been less studied and is harder to trace in detail than the influence of Arabic tradition, there are even materials in late medieval necromantic manuscripts closely resembling the magic of antiquity. It is often tempting to suppose that the forms of magical practice are essentially similar across cultures and throughout time, or at least over a very extended long jury. Indeed, one might easily be persuaded that there is a history of the uses of magic and reactions to magic, but not a history of magic itself. Virtually every magical technique one encounters appears so deeply rooted in tradition that magical practice seems essentially timeless and perennial. Indeed, it is possible to cite analogues and possible sources for late medieval magic from widely diverse cultures, in search of such parallels one could wander endlessly through thickets of the history of magic, from the Greek magical papyri of antiquity, through Arabic and Byzantine sources, and onto the grimoires of the early modern era. Yet when certain more or less well-defined classes of practitioner take an interest in magic, they will adapt to their own use forms of magic taken from various sources. If the history of magic is to be anything other than a night in which all cats are black, 
It must attend to the characteristics of specific melages of magical tradition. The chief purpose of this study is therefore not to trace the history of individual elements but to reconstruct the configurations into which these elements enter. The patterns of magical practice worked in a particular historical setting, the relationship between these forms of magic and other aspects of the culture, and the perceptions of magic within that culture. Furthermore, we cannot understand the opposition to magic in late medieval Europe without knowing fully what sorts of magic were being practiced in that culture. Apart from the exemplar by Caesarius of Heisterbach and others telling of the dangers of necromancy, there is considerable literature by late medieval theologians directed against these practices. For instance, the Paris theologians who in 1398 issued a general prohibition of magic were clearly aware of necromantic practices and concerned to eradicate them. 26. The theological literature against necromancy is incomprehensible without knowledge of the necromancer's formulas, and has at times been seriously misunderstood. 27. Nor can we understand the virulence of the critic's assault on magic without knowing the purposes magic was believed to serve. The glorification of the transgressive and the vilification of persecutors has perhaps too often blinded us to the recognition that much magic was intended for sexual coercion and exploitation, or for unscrupulous careerism, or for vigilante action against thieves that could easily lead to false accusations. I do not propose to moralize about these activities, but as a corrective to naive romanticizing I do want to make clear the kinds of magic one can expect to find in 